The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest for the first half hour is Jennifer Briney who is known as the Congressional Dish person. She follows what happens on Capitol Hill very carefully. Uh, welcome to the show, Jennifer. Thank you so much for having me. So let's start with your background a little bit and what it is that makes uh, what happens on Capitol Hill so fascinating to you. Well, I started this podcast about four years ago because I just wanted to find information about what was happening in Congress and couldn't really find it, and definitely not in a form that I found easy to digest. And so I decided that I, if it wasn't going to exist for me, then it's something I could create. And so I started Congressional Dish with the idea of I would read the bills that were going through Congress and tell people what was in them. Um, I had seen someone while watching C-SPAN that had slipped a uh, provision into an energy and water bill that protected secret campaign contributions. So that's kind of what gave me the idea because I knew things were being slipped in that we didn't, we weren't aware of. And so for the first two years, I was reading a lot of bills and then I realized that there's <laughs> more bills than one person can possibly handle. And so now the podcast is really just highlighting the most important things that are going on. And I watch a lot of hearings to get the context for why these bills are being created. And it's all from the perspective of just someone who wants to know where my tax dollars are going. And I have no allegiance to any political party or ideology. So I'm really just telling people what I'm finding as if you are one of my best friends. And that's, that's what the podcast does. What do people find when they go to congressionaldish.com? Well, when you go to congressionaldish.com, that's where you find my show notes where I give you all of the sources that I use because the only way that I can build credibility is by, you know, backing up everything I say. People don't know me and they shouldn't trust anything, you know. So what I do is on congressionaldish.com, I'll give you links to all the hearings. I'll give you timestamps for the clips that I use in my show. I'll give you my articles that I used, the government reports that I use, and then I outline the bills and not only linked to the bills themselves, but I link to the provisions in the bills themselves. So if you have any questions about my interpretation of something, you can go ahead and look at it yourself and we can go from there. And then if I do make any mistakes, I make sure to admit those right up front in whatever episode comes after, you know, the mistake is discovered. So it's all, it's all an accountability operation on congressionaldish.com. And what kind of response have you gotten to people who go to Congressional Dish and see what you're doing? This, the response has been overwhelmingly positive. Um, I think people have been hungry for something that's not full of partisan spin. That's just, this is what's going on and this is what I'm making of it. So I really do have people from all over the country, all over the world, actually, that are supporting this podcast, both by telling their friends and family and growing the audience, but also financially supporting it. And what's been surprising to me is even though I'm finding a lot of information that's disturbing to people... I'm giving, well, not me. I mean, it's the podcast. Congressional Dish is giving people a lot of hope because the more I learn about how our system works, the more I realize that we actually do have a lot of control over what happens in the House of Representatives in particular because that was always our branch, you know, the people's branch. And so it's just been a very positive, supportive um, 
hopeful experience, which is not really what I was expecting when I decided to look at Congress every day. So there's, in general, a lot of disaffection with Washington in general and Congress in particular. And the uh, everybody's running as an outsider against those terrible Washington insiders. Um, and that seems to have a lot of play out there, you know, in the, the political realm. Uh, are they right? I mean, are there all kinds of tricky things going on inside that people would be disgusted by? Can you kind of ex- understand why there's such... Uh, hatred and and low uh, views of uh, Congress these days. Oh yes, oh yes, and in fact, I'm I'm disgusted by what I'm finding every single day. I mean, just the way that we're funding the government, I think, is a scandal in and of itself. I mean, we're supposed to have the committees. There's 12 different sections of government that are supposed to be carefully funded every single year by 12 different committees, and instead, what we're getting is right in between Thanksgiving and Christmas, they're passing these massive bills that are thousands of pages. They're not available to read long enough for any anyone to actually read them. Like last year, it was a 2,000 page bill available for two and a half days. And um, so those get rushed into law and there's all kinds of favors to Wall Street and banks and just any campaign contributor. Um, There's all kinds of stuff that gets smashed into these must sign bills and then gets pushed into law. And so watching this happen now year after year after year, I am shocked and dismayed by what's going on in Congress. But at the same time, it's become less mysterious to me. I'm now understanding how this stuff is happening. And you're able to fight back about against something if you understand how it's being done. So I really do think that knowledge is power. And so I think taking some of the mystery out of it and being able to say specifically, like, this is why I'm angry at Congress and other people being able to say this is specifically what our problems are. I do think that we have a chance of solving them once we're able to diagnose them. I just wish that the conversations I'm having with my audience were the conversations that we were having on the television instead of focusing 100% on the presidential election where we really don't have a lot of power. So uh, there are some proposals being made on the presidential election uh, trail. Uh, For example, term limits on Congress one people. Uh, Also lobbying, saying that they couldn't uh, have a kind of a circular door and come back in and lobby for at least five years after they left Congress. All kinds of proposals like that being made all the time. Is it possible to reform the system so it's not as filled with loopholes and insider tricks as as you're finding? I think it is possible to reform the system, but it's going to take us voters replacing the people that are currently in Congress in mass. Because those proposals, I mean, neither Trump or Clinton have the ability to make those changes on their own. It has to be Congress. And if the people in Congress are the ones benefiting from having no term limits and from having the revolving door being open to them, they're not going to change a system that they're benefiting from. So my dream is that in one of these elections, preferably a midterm election, because that's where very few people show up to vote, if people who haven't been voting show up and we can have a group that is running for Congress on the platform of we are going to reform the system, that's how I think it can be done. But that's one of the problems that I have with the presidential coverage is that there's no one calling out these proposals as impossible for the president to do on their own. There's so many things that we're being promised from free education and things like that that only can be done through Congress. We have a lot of empty promises being made on the presidential stage. Yes, indeed. Uh, Let's get into some of the specific things that you found as you went along. Going back to 2014, uh, there was a lame duck Congress after the midterm elections. Uh, And what were some of the things that happened during that lame duck Congress that you found interesting? 
Well, I mean, I kind of already touched on it, but during the lame duck of 2014, that was um, one of the times when they funded the government in what I consider improperly through an omnibus funding bill. And that's basically where they take all 12 sections of government, smash it into one giant bill and then pass it. And what's really offensive about doing that in a lame duck, which by the way, they are going to be doing again this year, is that there are people in the lame duck Congress who have just been fired. It's the time of the least amount of accountability. And so what we had was a massive omnibus funding bill. This one funded 11 out of 12 parts of the government. They actually didn't finish even that much because they pushed the Department of Homeland Security funding into February because the Tea Party Republicans wanted to prevent the Obama administration from um, delaying immigrant deportations. So that fight actually pushed our Department of Homeland Security funding into February, which had a lot of people like my brother's in the Coast Guard, and he was really upset about this because they didn't know if they were getting paid. Um, so so yeah, that's that's one of the problems with the way that we're funding things is just like in 2014, we are now set up for the same situation in the next couple months because the government was supposed to be funded by September 30th. They did not do their job properly. They only funded one out of the 12 sections of government. So we have 11 out of the 12 that are going to be um, funded during the holidays when very few of us are paying attention and by people who should no longer be legislating considering a lot of them will be fired on November 8th. So exactly the same thing is going to happen in 2016 that happened in 2014. You'll have an omnibus bill uh, up against a deadline. Was it December 9th or something that the government runs out of funding? Is that the way it's going to work? December 9th. What I've seen in the past is that sometimes they'll push that off for a week or two, but they're always done by Christmas. <laughs> like anytime that they don't want to cut into their own vacation. So the December 9th, I think is wishy-washy. It could be anytime between like the 9th and the 16th. But yes, we are going to get a huge bill funding 11 out of the 12 parts of our government. And if the past is any guide, we probably won't have enough time to really read this thing and understand what's in it until it's already law. Now, this is a bill. This is not a continuing resolution. Maybe describe the difference between an omnibus bill and a continuing resolution, which people hear about all the time as a way to keep the government funded. Sure. Um, a continuing resolution is actually what we just got, because like I said, the deadline was September 30th and they didn't meet it. So the choices at that point are to either shut down the government or have a continuing resolution which continues the current government funding numbers. And so that what was that's what was done for the 11 out of 12 sections of government. They basically just extended their deadline for a little while. That's a continuing resolution. And then the one thing that they did fund on time was military construction and veterans um, affairs. And so, but most of the government is under a continuing resolution which is just they're actually not that disturbing. If nothing is attached to them, it's just extending the deadline. And um, it means there's no increases in funding. There's no decreases. It's just generally the same. Now, um, say there's a sweep of the House uh, Senate one way or the other. That We don't have to say which, but one party sweeps and, and has control of the House and Senate and the, the White House. Do you think that would change this and would actually get full bills through and not have to rely on continuing resolutions? I mean, when it comes to government funding, I'm really not sure. Um, I do. I can tell you that having the Republicans in charge of the House and the Senate did allow more things to become law in this Congress than in the last Congress. So I've been doing this for two Congresses, and in the 113th, we had Republicans in charge of the House and Democrats in charge of the Senate, and very few large pieces of legislation were able to make it through. So if there is one party in control of both houses of Congress— 
then the only real stop you have is the veto pen of the president. And when the American public is approached with, okay, we have this giant government funding law or the government shuts down, there's a lot of pressure to just keep the government open. And so that's how they can get a lot of things past the president's veto pen, even if the president doesn't agree with them. So having the two parts of Congress be the same party, yes, more does get done. done. Is that a good thing? I don't know. But um, but yeah, that's that would would that would be an effect. More would get done. One of the big bills that passed in this last Congress was the fast track legislation on uh, trade deals, particularly Trans-Pacific Partnership. Yeah. So just tell me about that and what is the significance of that? And my understanding is after the election, there has to be action one way or the other on TPP. It's going to be a, probably one of the biggest issues coming up right after the election. Well, um, here's the thing about the fast track legislation. It's basically, in my opinion, a runaround around the Constitution because with treaties, where there's a very specific way that Congress is supposed to approve treaties. But instead, what they do is they label these trade agreements instead of treaties. And then they pass this fast track legislation, which limits the debate in Congress and makes it so that the Senate, unlike, so if the Senate were to vote on this as a treaty, they would need two thirds of the Senate to pass it. With fast track legislation, legislation for these trade agreements, they only need 50% of the Senate. So it's basically majority rules. And so it makes it much, much faster um, for these trade agreements to get signed into law. And this is going to be effect in effect until July 2021, in, technically until 2018, but it's so easy to extend that for all intents and purposes, this will be in effect until July 2021. So what that means is that the next president is going to have this authority to get these trade agreements pushed through Congress quicker through their entire first term. And then possibly, if it's only a one-term president, the person after that will have six months of fast-track authority. And so this has been branded as something for the Trans-Pacific Partnership, but it's actually much bitter, bigger than that because we have the... Um, we have another trade agreement with Europe that's being worked out right now, and an even bigger one. This is called TISA that we have to watch out for. This is a, a trade and services agreement. And so all of these things are eligible to be pushed through with Fast Track. However, the one that is complete right now is the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And all that really is required at this point is for us to have our Congress pass it into law. And the president has said that he definitely wants Congress to vote on this in the lame duck session, which, like I said, is the most unaccountable time of a Congress. Um, I'm not entirely sure that's going to happen. There's a lot of resistance on both sides of the aisle. But if this is going to get signed into law, I do think that the next couple of months is when it's going to happen. So it's definitely something to watch out for. And I think it would happen quite quickly if it's going to happen at all. Very good. We're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this half hour is Jennifer Briney. Uh, she is the Congressional Dish Lady. Uh, her website is congressionaldish.com. We'll be back after this. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Bob Pritchard has over 30 years of experience as a straight-talking business consultant and author working with some of the top Fortune 500 companies. 
Now he's come to the Voice America Business Channel to help you and your business. Tune in to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show for information about starting and successfully running a profitable business. From the movers and shakers to great marketing screw-ups, you can't afford to miss a single edition of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, Tuesdays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Leadership is a vital skill set in today's competitive global economy. Being a leader is not enough. To succeed, you must optimize your performance and know how to imbue others in your organization with leadership skills. Practical, actionable leadership insights are the focus of Leadership Development News, hosted each Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, by Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler on the Voice America Business Channel. Doctors Greenberg and Nadler, who coach global leaders on how to be most effective, will share their insights and contacts. The path to leadership excellence begins here. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Jennifer Briney. She's known as the Congressional Dish Lady, her website, congressionaldish.com. Welcome back to the show, Jennifer. Thank you very much. And how do you make a living at being the Congressional Dish Lady? <laughs> well, um, my podcast is actually fully listener supported. And so I have a few different avenues for people to pay me for the work that I do. I have um, PayPal, Patreon, and then people send physical checks to my PO box address. And then I do also have an Amazon search box. That's a way that most podcasters do make some money so that if people can't actually contribute cash, they we can get a commission when everyone shops on Amazon. But that's really the only even kind of corporate relationship that I have. The rest of it is all people who appreciate the work that I do and they contribute whatever they think is fair. So I have people that contribute as little as a dollar per month. I have someone who contributes $250 per month and everything in between. It's been a beautiful, beautiful experiment. So it's like you're the only one in the country who's not on Capitol Hill who's actually reading these bills and looking at the hearings. It's kind of pathetic when you get down to it. I don't know anyone else doing what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, it is kind of sad. But, um, but you know, it's working out for me. I think someone else eventually is going to come in here and do a better job. But until that happens, um, the country stuck with me. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, there was another one called the USA Freedom Act uh, that happened in June. So tell me what happened with that act and what is the significance of that one? So that one was basically the reauthorization of the Patriot Act because the Patriot Act was basically expiring. Um, and so they had to re-up those permissions for the government to basically spy on us. And one of the things that the USA Freedom Act, the things, the thing that I think is the most important thing to know, is that prior to the USA Freedom Act, the government was collecting our information and storing it themselves. Um, so for instance, there was a place called the Utah Data Center that was just basically copying the information. They were storing it in this billion dollar facility in the middle of the desert in Utah. Well, that's no longer how they're going to store our information. Instead, because of the USA Freedom Act, the private companies that handle our information are going to hold on to it for the government. And then these companies were given broad immunity for turning information over in response to secret FISA court orders. So if your information is being requested, you're not going to know about it because these FISA courts, there was no change in the way they operate. 
But what is different is the information is not going to be held by the government itself. It's going to be held by whatever company you're doing business with, Comcast, Google, Yahoo, any of them. There was really no limit to which private companies would be given this this immunity. So that's probably the number one thing to know about the USA Freedom Act. And then there was the Bipartisan Budget Act, uh, which raised the uh, debt ceiling. So what is the situation now? The debt ceiling has been put off till after the election but is there going to be another big battle over that? Uh, and when does that happen? Oh, of course. <laughs> Um, because that is an opportunity for must-sign legislation. There are, anytime there's repercussions for something not being signed, it's used as an opportunity to stick things to it and get things signed into law that probably wouldn't be signed into law otherwise. So, for instance, the last time we raised the debt ceiling, this was um, November of 2015, we sold some oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, and we repealed some IRS rules for large corporations, hedge funds, private equity funds. And these are things that, you know, the, the average U.S. citizen is not begging for the IRS to go easier on large corporations right now. And so that's an example of what will happen. And to be honest with you, I can't remember how long it raised the debt ceiling for. Um, you can't quote me on this, but I think it's until about March of next year, but I'm not entirely sure. I do know that it's after the election, though. That was kind of the point, as they wanted to get through 2016 without having to deal with that again. So when that comes up again, say in March or whenever we hit it, uh, they'll, it'll be another Christmas tree to get all kinds of other things on. Cause it's a, a kind of a must do bill. Is that the way it works there? Yeah. I actually get very nervous in the six months after an election because you see a lot of this stuff happening. So the next opportunity for must sign legislation is going to be the government funding law on December 9th ish. Um, debt ceiling will be after that. So, and it's the least accountable time because it's the furthest point from the next election. So yes, I am quite nervous between now and about next summer about, how much horrible things are going to get signed into law. Of course, we do get to vote next week. We do have a choice. Um, we could pay closer attention to who we vote for for Congress. Um, but if things go the way they have been, I think we're going to see a lot of incumbents come back, in which case they're going to continue the same behavior. And um, I'm not optimistic. So one of the big issues this year was Puerto Rico, which basically defaulted on its debt and wasn't legally allowed to go into Chapter 9 bankruptcy because it's not a state or municipality, it's a commonwealth. So mm -hmm. what was negotiations and what ended up happening over the uh, oversight of Puerto Rico and its kind of ensuing bankruptcy? Well, I'm so glad you asked that question because this was a real eye-opener for me. Puerto Rico is one of our territories, so it is a part of our country. There are Everybody who is in Puerto Rico is a U.S. citizen, and they don't have the same rights as we do. And so it turns out that Congress really controls Puerto Rico, and instead of giving them the same bankruptcy rights that every other state would have— this law it gives um, it puts Puerto Rico's financial decisions in chart into the hands of a control board, and this control board was picked by the United States Congress and the President. So it is four Republicans, three Democrats. We know who, now know who's on the board. It was actually staffed by a bunch of bankers, which is concerning. Um, this board is going to get at least two million dollars per month from the people of Puerto Rico. And remember, we had to do this because they're broke. So to make them pay for the board themselves is pretty 
mean. This board is going to create and enact all fiscal plans for the island. They can change the pension payout terms because the pensions are a big part of this. Basically, um, the big banks and hedge funds knew that Puerto Rico was desperate and needed money. So they gave them money, but with giant IOUs. I mean, we're talking like interest rates of like 700%. And so Puerto Rico is 70, $72 billion in debt. There are estimates saying that about half of that is just interest to the hedge funds and the banks. And so when you staff the board with a bunch of bankers, instead of telling the banks to take less in interest, these bankers are probably going to use this power to change the pension payouts to take the money away from the Puerto Rican workers instead of themselves. So that's one of the concerns with this board. There's all kinds of protests going on in Puerto Rico right now, by the way. Um, the board can also cut government services, institute hiring freezes, and um, it's this board that's going to choose Puerto Rico's infrastructure projects and ex expedite the permitting. And then probably the most offensive thing to me is that the board also has the power to lower the minimum wage for people under 25 to $4.25 per hour. How is anyone supposed to survive off, to, off of that rate? So this board has a lot of power. Now that we know who was appointed to it, I have serious concerns. And this board is going to be around for at least four years, but it really gets to choose when it gives up its power over Puerto Rico's finances. And, um, and yeah, oh, and as far as Puerto Ricans are concerned, their governor does have a seat on the board, but is not allowed to vote. So for all intents wow. and purposes, <laughs> yeah, Puerto Rico is really not involved in this at all. So it's kind of a classic example of people with a vested interest lobbying uh, to take control of the situation kind of with Congress's approval, basically, is what happened here, right? And what really bothers me about this is because us Americans don't pay any attention to Puerto Rico, there was no outcry over this. I mean, this was something, I did the episode on this before it became law. We had the opportunity to stop it. It is one of the most offensive things I've ever seen. And yet, there was no one saying anything about it. No one was paying attention. There was really no coverage on the news. And so I feel responsible for what's happening to Puerto Rico right now because we just sat back and said, eh, <laughs> you know, Puerto Rico's not really a state. Like, we're not going to pay that much attention. So it really is a tragedy what's happening there. And it is because of Congress's connections to the same people that were taking advantage of Puerto Rico's financial situation. Yeah. There's another uh, bill you want to talk about, which is called the Student Success Act. Uh, what happened with that in the Department of Education? So the Student Success Act, was it was signed into law really at the same time as that giant 2,000-page omnibus funding bill. This happened between Thanksgiving and Christmas of last year. Um, there was the omnibus, there was the Every Student Succeeds Act, and there was a five-year transportation funding law all signed into law within a week of each other. We're talking like... 3,500 pages of legislation that I had no prayer of reading in real time. So, um, but what this did is it really dramatically changed our education policy in the United States to the point that the Department of Education, which is a federal agency, really had their role in education policy drastically diminished. Now it's going to be state and local organizations or agencies that are going to be making the vast majority of the decisions. There are going to be layoffs in the Department of Transportation uh, this December, actually. They're coming up because their role was so drastically diminished. And one of the stated goals and effects of the Every Student Succeeds Act is that it's going to increase the number of charter schools that are in the United States. And charter schools are public schools that are managed 
privately. So some of them are for profit, some of them are not for profit, but it's non-governmental people, it's private individuals that get to make the decisions of where our tax money goes. And this has been expanding across the United States with very little discussion amongst the, the people of the United States. And now we have this, this new law that is going to make that a priority and funnel our tax money away from traditional public schools and into these. Very dramatic stuff. So in about two minutes we have left, just kind of summarize the lessons you've learned at watching these congressional hearings and getting into all these bills. What's really going on in Washington compared to what most people might think is happening there? Well, you know, actually the biggest lesson to me, I think, is just a confirmation of something I suspected a long time, which is that the campaign contributions have an effect on our legislation. And that I have found to be absolutely true. Um, what I'll do is I'll look into the authors of these bills and try and find out where they get their funding. And it's actually been so easy for me to find connections between the bills that they write and who is giving them money. It's so easy. And, um, and so that's probably the most important thing for people to understand about the Congress is that a lot of the problems that we have, if not all of them, are caused by the amount of money that the representatives are raising for themselves from the same exact people that they're legislating for. I mean, we're not really their constituents right now. It's really the people that are giving them money for their campaigns. And um, we need to do something about that to stop any problems that we're having with the way our Congress functions. It needs to stop being about money and has to be about us once again. And I, I'm not entirely sure how we do that but it's, it's necessary. If there was public funding of congressional campaigns complete and not having any private money, I mean, in theory, there is that for presidential now, would that solve the problem that you did not have this influence from all the people paying in effect for legislation? I mean, I think it would even the playing field. I think it's a good idea. I mean, I, I've even tossed around the idea of having like a limit on what you can spend on your campaign because if you give, like let's say you give 10 people the same amount of money and say, okay, let's see how effectively you can use this money to get your message out. I think that exhibits some skill in communicating and working with your constituency where if, you can af if you're just dialing for dollars and you amass $4 million and your competitor only has like 10,000, well, that's such an unfair advantage that you, the guy that can get his name out more generally does win the election. So I'm not against the idea. Will it solve everything? I don't know. But it's definitely a step in the right direction. Very good. All right. Well, this has been fascinating. My guest for this half hour has been Jennifer Briney. She's known as the Congressional Dish Lady. Her website, congressionaldish.com. Uh, she takes donations and she's a watchdog on your behalf and seeing what's really going on in Congress. So thanks so much for being a guest on the Money Answer Show, Jennifer. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks again, and we'll be back in the next half hour with another guest named Shannon McClay. We'll be back after this. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. 
It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest for this half hour is Shannon McClay, who is the founder of The Financial Gym based in New York City. Welcome to the show, Shannon. Thank you for having me, Jordan. So just start with your background. You've been in the financial business a while. And yeah. what uh, made you want to uh, found Financial Gym? Yeah, so I started at, right out of college working on a trading floor in 2000. And I worked for the next 13 years in various financial services companies on trading floors, hedge funds, the whole uh, gambit. And then at, when I was about 33, I realized that maybe I need a financial advisor, some kind of help. Because at the time I had a child, I was married, I was looking to buy a house and I felt like I needed some assistance. I was working for Bank of America, Merrill Lynch at the time and I thought it'd be really easy to find a financial advisor since I worked with a lot of them. And what I realized is in the process of finding a financial advisor, I realized that 80% are men and there's nothing wrong with men. I tell people I married one, I birthed one, they're fantastic. But um, but if I, as a woman, if I wanted to find somebody to help me with my money, they're just little options. So I thought if you can't beat them, join them. So I became a financial advisor at Merrill Lynch and I was building a very successful practice working with high net worth individuals. And while I was doing that, I started to meet a lot of what I call my pro bono clients. So people who didn't have 250000 in assets, but needed financial assistance. And because I didn't look and feel like the traditional financial advisor, they came to me. And I tell people I had this one really defining week of my life where on a Tuesday, I met with this couple who had over a million dollars invested with me. We were talking about their portfolio. It was down 3%. And I always say down with air quotes because it was just unrealized losses, but they were upset about their portfolio. And I, in the middle of the meeting, I just kind of felt like I was losing my soul. And, um, and then a few days later, I met with one of my pro bono clients who I had put together a plan for. And it was just on a Word document. It wasn't anything fancy. And, you know, I just told her, do this, do that. Here's what you need to do. And at the end of the meeting, she looked me in the eyes and she said, you know you're saving my life, right? And it was like that aha moment where I thought, you know, I need to be helping people like her or more people like her rather than the people earlier in the week. There's plenty of financial services companies out there who want to help people who have a million dollars. There's not enough companies that actually want to give help people with people as opposed to technology or a website or an app um, who don't have a million dollars, who maybe have $10,000 in the bank or $250,000 of student loan debt. There's a lot more people like there out out there. And I thought, well, Um, I need to create something that will help them. So three years ago, I left Merrill Lynch to start the financial gym. And um, I always envisioned it being a location, kind of like H&R Block, but more fun. And I just wanted to create a place where people of all financial asset shapes and sizes could get the financial help that they need. And it's been 
three years in the making, but we finally opened our first gym in New York City in the Flatiron area. And the plan is to open them 10 more next year and then across the country as soon as possible. So what do you see when you enter the financial gym? What do you see? Well, you know, I tell people the best way to describe it, because we use a lot of analogies in the gym, similar to physical fitness. We use a lot of financial fitness analogies. And I tell people when you go to a physical fitness gym, you know, you're going to get uncomfortable. It's you're supposed to get uncomfortable with your body. That's, that's what the whole point is. But when you go to a financial gym, you, you get feel comfortable, right? When you walk in, it's a very relaxed environment. We have a help yourself beverage bar that has anything from press juice to beer and wine, whatever it takes to get you relaxed about your money. Um, we have different seating areas. Our um, We call them training rooms, but our conference rooms are designed to make you feel like you're at your kitchen table, your dining room table, because money is very personal. And uh, talking about your finances and getting, uh, we say you're, you're getting financially naked at the financial gym, it's, um, it's unsettling for some people. And we want to create an environment that's inviting, that's comfortable, that's friendly, um, so that people can do the hard work they need to do to reach the financial goals they have. And so can you only deal with people in person or can you deal with them on the phone and online around the country as well? Yeah, we do. We, we work with clients virtually as well. Actually, um, we have clients across the country and they we work we either FaceTime, Skype or phone, whatever works for them. And um, yeah, so we have both. So what is the business model? I mean, the reason that Merrill Lynch and these big financial firms are not catering to these clients is they can't make any money at it, certainly not enough for for their overhead. How is it that you can have a sustainable business model when the rest of the financial industry cannot with serving with these kind of people? Well, they don't think they can make money off of them because of their, their pricing model. And their only way that they make money is by selling goods and services. Or if they're, if they're fee-based advisors, then they're, it's based on um, assets. And that, that's the problem with the model is the way that they're pricing it. The way we work is we're just like a gym um, where you pay membership levels to pay, depending on the amount of service or time with an individual that you need. And so it's more of a consulting model as opposed to a product service model. So we're not concerned about the products and services where that what that our clients have we work with, you know, we're an open platform. We don't we actually don't manage money um, in particular. We just we're more of like a consulting, just like a, a physical gym as well. We just have a membership model. So do you, do you recommend no load funds or uh, low load annuities or insurance policies? What if people need a product to implement a plan? So we don't do uh, we don't do we don't sell specific investments. What we do is we coach people on them. So the, there's a ton of research out there that'll say that 90% of your investment returns are actually based on your asset allocation and not the actual product that you use. So that's not that's not a concern to us is what you actually use. Although I don't love any kind of mutual funds with loads, and I particularly like e- index funds or ETFs for um, for investing. But mm-hmm. we don't give specific we we. We talk about um, the various buckets that our clients have, the goals that they have. We alloc- we give asset allocation goals to them, and then they're really we really kind of handhold them through the education process of picking it for themselves. They actually pick their own investments. But you know, I tell people this all the time. When I was at Merrill Lynch, it was very frustrating because the focus was always on the investing, which is important. Um, but it 
when you think about it, over time, and again, most research will show that an average portfolio is going to earn about 6 to 8% over time. So on $1,000, that's 60 to $80 that your investments are going to give you every year, which is great. But you know, my focus is helping people save $100 a year, right? And then that's a 10% return on your investments. Or if I could get you to save $500 a year, that's a 50% return on your investment. And I saw this when I was at Merrill Lynch. The problem is not the investing solution. It's actually having the money to invest. And most people have a problem actually getting the money in the account to invest. Once you pick the investments, that's the easy part. I mean, now with with between robo-advisors or... Um, asset allocation funds, asset allocation ETFs, that that part, the difficult part, the picking of the investments is kind of done for you. The hardest part's having the money. And that's so, what we're focused on. So do you help people uh, with a budget and see where they can save on money and get better plans? Or what, what do you do in the process to help them save money then? Yeah, so it's it's identifying what their goals are and their, their challenges are. Each client's different. Um, what I found is significantly, and again, there's lots of research on this, is that people dramatically undersave. Um, there's a lot of the different, uh, there's different conflicts with um, with saving money, with budgeting. I mean, the traditional budget, a budget's like a diet. It's like a four-letter word. Nobody wants to be on it, right? But that's like everything you read is, I have to be on a budget. Our clients are on budgets, but we, uh, they don't realize it because we do, we do a lot of different um T- tricks and and um, we work with them in a different way, kind of way, to get them to understand their money better and um, save better and make smarter choices. Once our clients start working with us, we have a system where we see everything. So we see all their debit card transactions, their credit card transactions, um, everything in one place. And when they have their reviews, we go over things and and figure out what's the problem, what's working, what's not working. Um, every quarter, it's we're, we're talking about what's coming up, what, whether, you know, we have a lot of millennial clients. So, you know, are they are they going to weddings? I tell you what, weddings are a big killer for the, for a lot of people. You know, you, you could spend easily six, $600 to $1,000 um, for per wedding, depending on how much you have to travel. And you think about, you know, when you're not, when you're only making $50,000 a year in New York, that's, that's going to create problems. Um, you're talking so about going to weddings, not paying for your own wedding. Right, yeah, no. Jordan, can you imagine a $1,000 wedding, actually? <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you clarified that. I actually yeah. interviewed someone recently, a millennial on my podcast, who had a $10,000 wedding, and I was like, I thought that was insane that she could do that. But yeah, no, going to weddings can cost 600 to $1,000. And, and there's all these different priorities. And I say, you know, financial fitness is just like physical fitness. There's only two components. So if, to get physically fit, you need to work out more and eat less. To get financially fit, you need to spend less and, and make more. But if, if both were so easy, we'd have a bunch of skinny millionaires running around. And mm-hmm. the problem is that it's not. There's a lot of other life gets in the way. Emotions get in the way. A lot of clients come to me after they've had kids and realize their finances have gone sideways. Kids are the emotion, uh, the ultimate emotional experience. And where emotions and finance mix, that's usually where people get messed up with their money. So we get them one, back. One of the big kids. expenses for the Gen X, the, the younger people, millennials, is student loan debt. Are you seeing a lot of people coming to you? with student loan debt, both themselves and their parents having taken it on? And what do you suggest for yes. people to get, get rid of the student loan debt? 
Yes, I see. 65% of the graduating population has student loan debt now. And it's a big problem. And the number one issue I see are, is the fact that, first of all, most of them, 60, I think 63% don't realize what they're signing when they sign up for it. And then they graduate and they have this huge bill in front of them. And the biggest problem I see is that they get hyper-focused on repaying it because it, it's, again, just like gaining all this weight, right? You want to lose the weight. You feel uncomfortable with all this extra debt on you. But in doing that, the problem I'm seeing is that they're working so hard to pay down that debt, but they don't have enough cash or assets to to achieve other life goals. And so what happens is, you know, student loan debt stinks, but the problem with it, it's not like other debt, it's not like credit card debt or home equity line or home equity or mortgage where you pay it down and you have access to it again if you should need it. Once you pay down student loan debt, you can't take it out again unless you're a student again. So once you pay down that money, your cash is gone and it's great to have your debt go away. But what if you have a healthcare emergency, you know, it's going to cost you a thousand dollars or what if you need. So there's no liquidity. With it, is what right. you're saying. You don't have liquidity again because, yeah. you know, you can't borrow again from it. So, so you're saying people are paying down their student loan debt too much and taking away their liquidity for other emergencies. Exactly, Jordan. And then what happens is they end up getting in worse problems because now they'll have credit card debt, right? And so instead of having student loan debt at 6%, now they've got credit card debt at 24.99% because they don't have the cash that they need for, you know, the So, so life. basically what you're saying is to pay down the student loan debt more slowly so yeah. that you have a life. Yes. <laughs> a balanced approach. It has the same effect on your net worth of, you know, ha- raising your liquidity versus paying down your debt, but it gives you some flexibility to to handle life, really. And then do you give people advice going into college about how much debt to take on in the first place so they're not burdened with such a huge uh, burden when they come out after graduation? Yes, Jordan, I wish they would come to me before that because that's where the biggest mistakes happen is when you sign up for it and how you pay it off while you're in there for the four years. The hard part is once you get, or the the difficult thing is once you get out, it's all done. But before and while you're in school, you can actually do, you. there's a number of things you can do while you're in school to, to minimize, minimize your debt that you're taking on. And having a strategy in place is, is huge. I actually had an intern this summer and we were working through his uh, his options, and and we figured out that by changing the way he was taking out the debt and what he could do, that we were saving him twenty thousand dollars over the next ten years. Wow! All right, we're going to take a break. This is Jordan Goodman of the Money Answer Show. My guest for this half hour is Shannon McClay. She has founded the Financial Gym in New York City. You can find out more about it at her website, which is financialgym.net. We'll be back after this. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 
Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this half hour is Shannon McClay. She is the founder of The Financial Gym in New York City. You can find out more about her and her gym at financialgym.net. Welcome back to the show, Shannon. Thank you. So you were saying another problem for Gen X uh, people is focusing too much on retirement. Now, people think you know they're going to live an, an awful long time and they're not saving mm-hmm. enough. How can mm-hmm. you possibly focus too much on retirement? <laughs> yes, I say with my Gen X and Gen Y clients, they uh, they're they're very concerned about retirement. They're concerned about a lot of their financial goals, but retirement because their baby boomer parents are telling them that they need to be prepared because a number of baby boomers are not prepared. And the reason why they're not prepared is not necessarily that they didn't have enough money in their retirement accounts, is that they didn't plan enough throughout their life. And what happens for my XY clients is that they over-contribute to their retirement accounts, and which sounds like a great thing at first. But what I tell them is that when you put your money in a retirement account, that's like sending it to the moon, right? It's it's not easily accessible. It's it's there. You can see it every night. You can see it every day at night, but it's not there. You, you're, you can get it, but not without a penalty and charges. And so it's not easily accessible. And what will happen is they'll put all this money in retirement accounts and then, you know, in five or 10 years, they'll want to buy a home and they don't have the cash to buy a home. Yes, you can. There are some... Um, rules that allow you to take money out without a penalty for um, for first time home buyers and things like that, but they're capped out at, at certain dollar amounts, and then beyond that, you'll have to start paying penalties and fees. And so, what I advise clients is to to really look at your your goals. I think about our our life journey as like a road trip across the United States, and and you want to make have the best plan for it, and you want to make sure that you have the money you need to get you through Chicago first before you're worried about California. You know, if you're starting out in New York, you know, you want to yeah. make sure you're thinking about what's coming ahead and what's in the next five to 10 years before we're worried about what's going to happen in 50 years. Because a lot of my clients are looking at retirement, you know, in the next 40 to 50 years, there's a lot of life to live between now and then, and you need liquidity and cash to do it. So it's just so about making a smart plan. 401k is the biggest thing that they're being uh, highly encouraged to do. They're being matched. Mm-hmm. It's automatic, the pre-tax dollars, it's growing tax deferred. This is the greatest thing since sliced bread. What should they do if they're being offered a 401k? Well, they, again, they have to look at the, the, the scenario. I, 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 the, co- the company match is very difficult to, uh, to um, not take up. But if you don't have other cash for your other needs, again, a lot of them are having, have student loan debt that they have to pay. So if you're, you're paying that and, um, and doing other, other uh, you have other life goals, it's hard to actually contribute even up to the employee match, the employer match in a 401k. But um, I say to just look at it and analyze what your monthly budget looks like. If you have the extra money and you know you're going to be prepared for your your trip to Chicago, meaning buying a home or, or having kids or at some kind of big liquidity event, as long as all the right money is getting into place, then you should absolutely max out your 401k or or Roth IRA or other retirement options. But I, I, I say you have to look at prioritize. It's kind of like a waterfall. The first 
uh, first bucket I have my clients look at is their emergency funds. I think that all everybody should have six to eight months of your monthly expenses saved in an emergency fund. And again, there's just a recent study that said the majority of people couldn't handle a $400 event financially. Yep. And that's yep. because they're, again, they're, they're, they're putting money in their 401k, but they have no money in their emergency fund. And, you know, again, emergencies happen all the time. There are thousand, I say thousand dollar events happen all the time. They, they shouldn't be called surprises. The only thing that's a surprise is what kind of event it is, whether yeah. it's healthcare, whether it's a car, whether it's, you know, fill in the blank though. They happen all the time. I see that from clients 22 to 62. It just, it happens. So you want Something's to make sure gonna happen. you just don't know what it's going to be. Yeah. Exactly. It's definitely going to happen. So now, a lot of people sure. graduating school are going back and living at home again, what I call the boomerang generation. Yes. They keep coming back. Um, mm-hmm. and, and they're doing that to save money. They don't have to have rent and all that. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes it can get to the late twenties or early thirties before they get out of the nest. Do you think that's a smart thing to do financially, or is that to set up yeah. a sense of dependency? What, what do you advise to people who just don't feel they can get out of the home at this point? I love it if you do it the right way. So what's interesting is I had a client come to me. She's 26 years old and she needed help. She only had $2,000 in the bank. And I said, you make, you're not paying rent. How do you only have 2000 Cause she lives at home and because she was spending everything, right? Cause she didn't have the discipline of rent and she actually didn't have student loan debt. So she didn't have that discipline of paying something. So I say, if you're going to go, if you're going to boomerang home, then that's great. But, but create that discipline. So whatever you would be paying in rent, put that aside, auto draft, auto save it to a savings account. And so you already get your budget. You Well, you have the responsibility and the discipline of having rent, but you're saving um, in the process. So then when you ever, whenever you are ready to move out, you'll have the money you need to move. You'll have the money you need to furnish your apartment and for other life events. So I, I think going home is a great idea. I don't think it's a great idea if you're burdening your parents um, to the point where they struggle. There was just a recent study by Fidelity and it talked about the different uh, savings buckets that each generation had. And the the highest was the millennials. It said they had something like $9,000 saved in an emergency account. Gen Xers had something like eight and baby boomers had five. And no. I thought it was really ironic with that, you know, Boomers have five, but millennials have nine. And I said, that's because all these boomers still supporting their kids. Exactly. You know? and, and their parents, too. The, 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 not only the boomerangers. Sandwich generation. Absolutely. What I call the, the reverse boomerangers is the parents right. back and moving with the kids. Yes. They're definitely now, getting hit on both ends. But Now, you did a book called Train Your Way to Financial Fitness. Uh, yeah. How can people get that? And what are some things in that book? Yeah, so the book is available on Amazon or on our, our site at financialgym.net. And the book is essentially a way to train yourself. Um, I have it split up into different categories. You take a quiz to figure out if you're financially fit, financially skinny, or financially fat. And then from that point, you read the section that's based on you and your type. And, and it helps you give you... Um, kind of what we do with our clients, but if you could do it on your own with the book and different exercises, financial exercises to help you with your money and, and get you financially fit. Why is it so difficult for people to get their minds around this topic? Is it because they're not being taught this in schools or yeah. what is the aversion to d- dealing with something that's in your own self-interest? 
Because um, it's not fun. You <laughs> know, just like getting physically fit. It's not fun to eat salads and, uh, you know, work out. It's fun to, to go out drinking and eat pizza. So you, it's hard to, we want to naturally avoid things that don't seem fun to us. And, and that's why we try to make it fun and less stressful at the gym. But yeah, we're definitely not taught it. It's not in the environment. There's no real reason why any of us should be good at it because billions of dollars a year are spent making us marketing and making us make stupid money choices. So it's, um, you really do just like physical health, you have to make a commitment to getting financially healthy and it takes work just like losing weight or being physically healthy does. And, and you have to commit that time to it, but we have a 90% success rate at the gym with our clients achieving their goals. And the number one common theme I see with all of our clients who are successful is they're putting in the hard work and they're, they're taking the time, they're looking at their money, they're reviewing it. They're, they're making smart choices when they stumble and have, uh, you know, a misstep or one of those financial emergencies happen. They just work harder and get back on, get back on and the track and keep working at it. So in about a minute we have left, what difference does it make for people to deal with somebody like you in a financial gym doing everything we've talked about compared to what they're doing without being in a financial gym? Yeah. Well, we're looking at everything. So I think sometimes when you work with a financial advisor or an app or a website, it's focused on one area or the app is only as good as what you can put into it or, you know, interpret from it. And when you're working with a traditional financial advisor, a lot of them are focused on just one aspect of your life, the investing or, or insurance. Again, they're product focused and, and we're looking at everything. We're analyzing your whole life, your whole financial picture with you. Very good. Well, thanks so much. My guest this half hour has been Shannon McClay. She is the founder of The Financial Gym, uh, based in New York City. You can find out more about it at financialgym.net and also find out more about her book, which is Train Your Way to Financial Fitness. It's been very interesting. Thanks so much for being on the show, Shannon. Thank you for having me, Jordan. Thanks again, and we'll be back with another edition of The Money Answer Show next week. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and The Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.